Hi, I'm Craig Mazin, creator of the HBO and Sky miniseries Chernobyl. This is a follow-up podcast to the podcast that we did for the series, and it is going to be a terrific discussion between myself and again, Peter Sagal, and we're going to also be joined by Jared Harris, who portrayed Valery Legasov on the series. But before we begin that conversation, I have a little prologue to add, because current events have taken a strange turn and a reminiscent turn lately. I'm talking about a nuclear explosion that happened in Russia. And just a few days before I'm recording this now, on August 8th, five nuclear specialists deployed by Rosatom, which is Russia's state atomic energy company, as well as two military personnel were killed. They were killed in an explosion at a military test site in northern Russia, the Nanoska missile test site. We believe here in the United States that this explosion involved a new kind of cruise missile that Putin is particularly proud of. This cruise missile apparently can reach any corner of the earth because it is not a typical missile that's powered by liquid fuel like a normal rocket. It's a cruise missile that is powered by a small nuclear reactor. Well, it exploded. Now, Rosatom did not confirm that anyone died until Saturday, August 10th. So two days go by before they say anything about anyone dying. And it's not until August 11th, three days after the explosion, that they come out and admit that it was nuclear in nature. The words they used, and these are fascinating, is that the failure occurred in, quote, an isotope power source for liquid-fueled rocket engine. Well, isotope power source means nuclear reactor. So, what happens next? Well, we're trying to cobble it all together, because the Russian government has not been particularly forthcoming. We do know that in the city of Severodvinsk, which is about 20 miles away from the missile test site, that someone detected a rise in background radiation. Even Russian news media recorded that that radiation level had gone up briefly to at least 200 times normal background levels. Now, to put that in context, that's not like Chernobyl, where you're getting upwards of 7,000 times background levels, but it's still not good. And then the reports sort of began to disappear. There is a regional news site that states that victims of the accident were not told that they may have suffered from radiation injuries, nor were the doctors and nurses told who were treating those people. After treating them, apparently the rooms uh, that they were treated in were sealed and doctors were sent to the capital for medical evaluations. Does any of this sound sickly familiar? The point isn't that accidents should never happen again. The point is that when they do, it is incumbent upon governments and people to be as open and transparent about them as possible. Chernobyl happened 33 years ago. And here we are just a week later, and there has been a nuclear explosion in Russia that we were told about days later. And there's a town called Nyonoksa, which was told to evacuate, and then we're told they're not evacuating, so we're not quite sure. And there are doctors whose medical scrubs apparently have been setting dosimeters clicking because they are contaminated. That's what we know. That's all they've told us. Hopefully, this doesn't lead to more deaths. It's terribly sad that scientists are still dying. It's terribly sad that first responders are still dying. And it is my great hope that after this incident, and maybe in a little way because of our show, 
people finally demand that their governments tell them the truth. And I have high hopes that people in Russia, who are currently protesting Mr. Putin's government, demand answers. This can't keep going on. 33 years ago and today, seems like not much has changed. And now on with the show. Professor Legasov, if you mean to suggest the Soviet state is somehow responsible for what happened, then I must warn you, you are treading on dangerous ground. I've already trod on dangerous ground. We're on dangerous ground right now because of our secrets and our lies. They're practically what define us. When the truth offends, we, we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it. it is even there, but it is still there. Hi, this is Peter Sagal, sometimes known as the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR, but more recently and gratifyingly known as the host of the Chernobyl podcast, originally produced with myself and the show's creator, Craig Mazin, to accompany each episode of the HBO miniseries. Well, some months after the extraordinary success of that miniseries, we have gotten the band together for a special After Effects episode of this podcast. Craig Mazin, how are you? I'm good, Mr. Peter Sagal. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I've been enjoying all the undue uh, attention I've been getting for, for being on this podcast. We are also joined, and I am extraordinarily excited by this, by the leading actor of the miniseries who played uh, Legasov to such extraordinary effect. Jared Harris is joining us. Jared, hello. Hi, as anybody who has seen the miniseries or even has just been watching the press, the, the miniseries kind of took over the national and international conversation in a way that even though I was a tremendous admirer of the show, was, was frankly surprised by. I mean, it's not, shall we say, uh, what you'd expect for popular entertainment. So I wanted to start by asking you, Craig, and you, Jared, if, if you were at all surprised by the extraordinary response uh, to this television show you guys made. Jared, were you surprised? <laughs> I was surprised. No, not at all. <laughs> I knew it was amazing. <laughs> In my dreams, it went exactly like the way I, I dreamt it. No, you, you, you never, you, you can't know what people are going to be thinking about 18 months in the future. And uh, it felt to me as though it arrived at a perfect moment and it entered part of a conversation, part of the zeitgeist, and it was, it sort of started to articulate what was on people's minds if they just shifted their, their gaze just two inches off the screen into the real world. Yeah. Can you guys talk about any of the specific interactions or reactions you've heard from viewers of the show that stood out for you? I had a, a guy come up to me at the airport recently whose father was a liquidator, and he uh, he was a Ukrainian and he was saying that thank you, thanking us for making the show and for bringing the world's attention to that story. Um, I met someone at the TCAs who's who fled the Ukraine um, and fled and fled the fallout. So yeah, there's a lot of personal stories that people come up to you and they're grateful for uh, for the story having been told and for the focus that Craig brought to. The, the heroism and the sacrifice that had gone unrecorded, you know, it, it, they hadn't been recognized in their own country at the time. Yeah. 
There was a guy on Twitter named Slava Malamud who uh, says that he grew up in the Ukraine. Uh, he now lives in America. And he, and he posted extraordinary uh, reviews of each episode just talking about the extraordinary accuracy of everything depicted. He talked about the clothing. He talked about you know, down to the pins worn in the party officials' uh, suits, to the wall decorations. Yes, we all had that in our office walls. <laughs> and I recommend the Twitter feed for those who are interested. Yeah. <laughs> Slava's threads were fascinating. And by the way, I learned things that I didn't know because, you know, I, I'm not aware of every single tiny choice that the production department makes. So when when he says, oh my gosh, they actually knew to put the wedding ring for Emily Watson's character on her right hand because that's how it was worn as opposed to the left hand. Or look, the not only is the license plate on this car accurate to being part of Soviet, um, the, the uh, Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, but they even got the the region code right. Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> so I just started thinking, wow, you know what? Our, our guys did a great job. I mean, they really did. There's a there's a word that I guess in Russian translates to cranberries, um, but what it means essentially is it's like a fake romanticization of Russian stuff, you know. So cranberries are if if you make a movie about Soviets and they're all I don't know wearing those hats even when it's not cold out, you know. It's like it's that 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 silly stuff, and and we were we were. Rather cranberry-free, according to uh, most people that spoke with us. And there's a lot of surprise that we got it right because they have seen the West. And by the way, they've also seen their own media in Russia, for instance, which is state, generally state-run and state-funded. They've seen a lot of people get it wrong. And th I think they were surprised that someone kind of got it right. One of my favorite things that he went on about was – one of the characters um, in episode four in with the liquidators who are taking care of the dogs, he talked about the, the Georgian character and, and how that actor um, actually managed to, to actually get across not just the physicality, but like the actual nature, like the soul of a Georgian. And I was like so amazed by how impressed he was by that accuracy. Mm-hmm. Well, it, we got a little, some of that's luck, um, but some of it is tailoring a part to an actor. So the actor there um, playing Bacho is Faris Faris, who uh, was born and grew up in Lebanon and then moved to Sweden. So he is Swedish-Lebanese or Lebanese-Swedish, however you, you want to mix it up. And so when we cast him, I changed that part. That part was originally written to be a Ukrainian, actually. And because of Faris's physicality and his appearance, I it was also a great opportunity for us to represent um, the different parts of the Soviet Union. We think of the Soviet Union as Russia. And, and, you know, certainly by land and population, it was majority Russian. And then you have Ukraine and Belarus, which are even closer to Europe than Russia. But you have all this Asia minor area and you have all these interesting other republics that aren't so, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed uh, white people. They're, they're, there's a certain ethnicity that's going on there that's fascinating. And so we kind of just tailored it to him. We tailored his name and his... But the Sovietness of him, that's something that Johan worked really hard with with everyone. I mean, I'm sure, Jared, you know, right off the bat when you were talking with Johan, he probably immediately started in with the what he would call the Soviet weight. Yeah, my recollection of those conversations was well there, there was a there was a, a movement person that we we skyped with but also a, a certain thing of a 
uh, underplaying and a, and a kind of um, a deadpan quality rather than that sort of you didn't wear your your heart on your sleeve and you weren't describing situations that you were in and from a performance point of view yeah yeah Jared so uh, tell me exactly what a movement person is we had a a coach who was going to teach us uh, certain sort of physical behaviors that were emblematic of of um, people from that society and it was a certain way that they carried themselves the, the thing that i remember mostly was the way they nod that when we nod in agreement it's from our it's a downward motion but when they nod as agreement it's upward like that mm. um that's the one the big one i remember but also at a certain kind of um like a Buster Keaton quality in your face where you don't give anything away. You're, you're concealing your emotions and your reactions and which is always, it's interesting because what it, one expects that when you start to play a scene that way, you're going to get the direction. What are you doing? I need to see what's going on inside your character. But Johan was completely the opposite. He was always, he was about the stakes are high enough and we, you know, you can hold it as much in as you can and make us look to see what's going on. One of my favorite moments is, I believe it's the, it's in the beginning of episode four, uh, Ludmilla has arrived in this new apartment that they've given her in Kiev. And there's a, a landlady that's essentially your building manager that's showing her the the room. And, and she is a, um, she's, she's an Eastern European actor and she's holding her cigarette and just standing there. And then Ludmilla looks back at her. Jesse Buckley turns back and the woman just goes, eh, like moves her cigarette like, I'm tired of standing here and just walks away. <laughs> it's it's perfect. And I don't think any British or American person would have ever th- done that naturally. It's just this kind of, I'm done here and walk away. Loved it. Hmm. Jared, we we haven't had the pleasure of having you on this particular podcast before, so l- let me ask you if if you can to uh, talk about how you approached the role. Uh, every actor prepares in a different way. How did you start with Legasov? Start with the script. <laughs> um, uh, read read that, and then go off on a journey of research, and and then you eventually surface from that. Come back to the script pull the script apart uh, which is probably really annoying because then you start asking questions and then you sort of figure out why it's been put together the way it's been put together and of course Craig has done that journey himself years ago and he understands why the interesting part about that is the things the choices that weren't made as opposed to the ones that were made because of obviously he went through that whole process himself so when you you understand why things aren't the way they are and why they are a specific way then you understand you're basically just trying to understand the story you're supposed to tell because you're you're a one strand of the whole canvas and you need to understand what's your responsibility what story are you telling well it's interesting that you you mentioned like there are things that didn't happen or things that weren't there and one of the things that occurred to me is, is is this is not always a very heroic character for example i love that about him yes how so i mean there like there are places where he could have done something brave or, or said something more truthful but didn't so one of the things that appealed to me as we started to do it about this about the role was that he was a reluctant hero. He was not somebody who, well, for example, 
the heroes in the first episode are the sort of traditional heroes. They're the first responders who, who go towards danger. And he's not one of those people. And he never he didn't make that choice in his life and he never thought he was going to have to be. Plus, when he gets dropped into that situation, he's still, it's not a choice. He can't leave. But he's aware of the of the fact that what staying means constantly. So his journey towards being a hero is a, a slow journey, if you like. And I, I like the idea of he was afraid. And, and he was afraid because he understood at every turn what the consequences were of just remaining there and also of, um, at, at a certain point, trying to subvert the narrative. There are moments in the miniseries where Lagasov, as you say, acts out of fear or even acts dishonestly. For example, the scene where they're asking for the volunteers who become the divers to go in there and go down there. And and the scene begins, and this is a a brave choice, I think, by Craig, to have the hero, Lagasov, stand up and basically lie to these guys. Lying to them, yeah. And of course, any volunteers will be rewarded. A yearly stipend of 400 rubles. And uh, for those of you working in reactors one and two promotions. Why are reactors one and two still operating at all? My friend was a security guard that night and uh, she's now dying. And we've all heard about the firemen. And now you want us to swim underneath a burning reactor. Do you even know how contaminated it is? I, I don't have an exact number. You don't need an exact number to know if it will kill us. But you can't even tell us that. Stellan should have been making that, well, his character should have been making that speech, but um, he's had the wind knocked out of him by me telling him that we're going to be dead in five years. Uh, He's been sidelined at that point, and I'm doing a really bad job of of lying to these people and of talking to them and he steps up and of course he understands who these people are and you have to tell them the truth so he tells them the truth probably not something that he's familiar with doing either but as a as a party official he would be all along the lines of those um that party official in the first episode which is uh you know cut the phone lines and contain the the spread of information so but he's suddenly he steps forward into that situation and he tells them what they need to hear so that they, they can make a, a, a dignified choice at that point. Why should we do this? For what? 400 rubles? You'll do it because it must be done. You'll do it because nobody else can. And if you don't, millions will die. If you tell me that's not enough, I won't believe you. Well, this is this is one of the reasons why Jared is so good at what he does. He doesn't just interrogate and understand his own character. He also is interrogating and understanding the characters that are in the scene with him because that that informs what you're doing and how you're supposed to do it. You see, to me, character is not in isolation. Character only exists in relationship. And what's what I love when we're cutting these scenes together is finding those moments. And this is where Johan and I, I think we just had a lovely philosophical convergence. We feel the same way that these moments are best delivered in reactions. And Jared would do these things just beautifully all the time. You could see him looking at Stellan and going, 
thank thank God he's doing this, but also, oh, oh, I'm starting to understand something about him as a human being, and my relationship to him is now changed because it was, I'm going to throw you out of this helicopter, and now it's something else. I'm seeing a human in there that actually is quite noble, and there's a beauty to this man. He is not what I thought he was. And that is the beginning. That moment right there is the beginning of their friendship. Jared, I, will, I, I have two more questions for you, and obviously I want to hear whatever else you have to say. The, the first is rather specific. The second is larger. In, in the final episode, you deliver the most extraordinarily lengthy and detailed it technological— It long. Come on. <laughs> hey, give me a second here. I'm trying to praise the man. It was like a few—it was a few lines. It was a lot of exposition about very complicated technical (laughs) aspects. It used used to be longer. (laughs) uh, Craig already knows that I think it's remarkably successful, but I wanted to ask how much of a challenge you found that scene, the the courtroom scene. Craig, did you set him up for this? I did not. Jared came to me and he said, why so short? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really? more words. Uh, there were actually that there was more, but it it uh, it got some of it got cut out because um, uh, it was a it was a, I'd say it was probably about two and a half pages longer, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we I had been kind of beating it up from the point of view of just being terrified at the amount we were showing the audience and demanding their attention for. But also, you know, just Jared kind of undersold a little bit earlier his process with the script because, you know, he and I had a series of conversations before we started shooting that were really influential, particularly on the the way that episode four turned into five and how episode five worked dramatically in terms of what the stakes were and what his goals were and how that was going to function and and some really significant changes came out of that and then just going through there was a very careful examination of look it's an enormous amount i mean we had to figure and unfortunately because of the way our schedule worked in terms of both availability and budget that week that so the one thing that jared was like please put the trial at the end of the schedule and our scheduling people came back and said the only way we are going to be able to make this show for this amount of money is if that trial is on week three. <laughs> and so, you know. And, and, and the weeks before it were all the giant Kremlin scenes with all that exposition as well. So it wasn't like, well, I can sort of, I can coast through the first two weeks and and, and spend that time figuring out what's going to happen. Nah, no, that didn't. Yeah. So, so being able yeah. to talk for 10 minutes about Xenon as an actor's dream or an actor's nightmare? Well, I mean, to answer your question, the challenge, the specific challenge of this part was a tremendous amount of explaining that he had to do in many, many scenes. And the largest example of it was episode five and what amounted to a 24-page monologue. Cool water takes heat out of the system. As it does, it turns to steam or what we call a void. In an RBMK reactor of the type used at Chernobyl, there's something called a positive void coefficient. What does that mean? It means that the more steam present within the system, the higher the reactivity, which means more heat, which means more steam, which means it would appear we, we have a vicious cycle on our hands. How do you make that interesting? How, I mean, how, do, how is that more than just I'm conveying information? Because that's boring to watch. So the biggest challenge of playing the part was a 
finding a sort of a subtextual uh, journey or narrative. So I, I was playing something else other than here's this information. And you know, some of it was planned, but a lot of it we discovered in the room and there were... Um, and, and some of it comes from, it was in Craig's script. So, for example, in that first, well, it was all in Craig's script. But, um, for example, all of the uh, the scene in the first Kremlin, where he's having to explain why he feels that the situation's worse than it, it is. And Craig had written that he describes the uh, protons as being bullets. Every atom of U-235 is like a bullet traveling at nearly the speed of light, penetrating everything in its path, woods, metal, concrete, flesh. Every gram of U-235 holds over a billion trillion of these bullets. That's in one gram. Now, Chernobyl holds over three million grams, and right now it is on fire. So then you look at that and you think, well, why does he, why does he use that word? And then you, I, I understand that where Craig's mind was, and that was, okay, he's in a room full of people that if I start describing it in scientific terms, I'm going to lose them and they won't understand. I need to explain this in a language that they do understand, and the language that they understand is bullets to the back of the head. Right. And But he only discovers that at that moment. You know, um, So that's useful because you can plan that. There's other stuff that you can't plan that there was versions of it that we did that were really passionate. And I think the one that they used that I liked was where he gets carried away and then he suddenly realizes the room that he's in and he gets scared and he dials himself back because he understands who he's talking to. And he pulls himself and gets himself under control. So, you know, you look for little things like that within with a, a, a big narrative where you're having to explain stuff. And then... Specifically in that last courtroom scene, Craig had set the whole thing up. So we're watching it going, is he going to do it? Is he going to tell the truth? And then also that that Johan and Craig's approach to that scene and the way it was structured was they didn't want it to end up with a, a giant sort of um, injustice for all uh, Al Pacino. You're out of order. You're <laughs> out of order. Like a big thing like that, that it kind of... It kind of it's like a balloon losing its air. It's a kind of fart at the end that they he <laughs> That's what I was he, going he for. lays out this thing before them and there's just no response at all. And it was a futile gesture that um, at the end of the day you can look at and say, well, why would you ever think this could work? Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, the every chance we could, we tried to avoid doing what it seemed uh, 70 years of television had taught us to do. And ending a trial with an utter failure, I mean, just an utter failure, is interesting in and of itself and also, I think, very Soviet. Um, the history of people making brave stances and ending up with ice picks to the back of their head is pretty long and glorious. And he tries something there out of just a sheer devotion to principle, and it fails. And only then through that failure, I think do we imply that Lagasov gets the idea of what he's going to eventually need to do, that there's only really one way to win. Right. And going through everything that we did for with, inside the Kremlin and certainly at the trial, it was always about trying to figure out what this explanation meant to Lagasov as he was telling it. It was 
through the lens of his contempt and um, outrage for Dyatlov and what he, and the decisions he had made. It is also sometimes powered by his love of the science itself. I mean, when he starts talking about the nuclear reactor, you see him getting lost in the thing that got him excited as a young man about all of it, which is that it is beautiful. When it works, it's remarkable. It's an incredible achievement. And there you see reflected back a little bit of what the Soviets had for their scientific and industrial complex, this reverence, which, as it turned out, was, was somewhat misplaced. Jared, you said earlier that uh, when thinking about, say, the Kremlin scene, it's important to think of, like, what is the character doing other than simply imparting information? What is yeah. what is he trying to do in terms of his desire, his motivation? So what did you bring to that final courtroom scene in that sense? I, I think that the idea that he didn't know if he was going to do it or not, because there was a sort of several choices where you could go, okay, well, he makes a decision here. But, okay, well, what if we push it off and push it off? And so it was almost, it came down to the moment when he's looking at the judge and he's, he's uh, there was, a, it was sort of in the script that there's a sort of pause and he's, he's, it's right at the edge of the cliff and he pauses right before the edge of the cliff and there's a moment where he's staring at him and the realisation of what he's about to do hits him and then he goes over the edge. And I think from an acting point of view, that you know that by the time you get to this part of the story, the audience wants to know what happened. Yeah, right. Because, again, as part of Cray's construction of how he put this thing together, he starts with the explosion and you see the immediate after effects and then you're dealing with the um, the aftermath of it, but always constantly talking about it. And then the narrative question is posed, well, why did it happen? How did it happen? Which Emily's character starts to go off on uh, on this uh, a detective trail, if you like, which is the sort of political thriller aspect of the of episodes two and three. And then by the time you get to five, yeah, you want to know, well, what happened? Why did it blow up? So. Th- that's interesting. And so you know that at that point you're you're answering questions that the audience will have in their mind. So that relieves some of the pressure off of you as a performer in some things you you might you need to juice up and other stuff you got no that this is where I'm holding these threads at the moment and that's where the tension is. We had also the benefit of some circumstances that helped that mystery along because if there was simply one thing that happened that night then you might run into a situation where you're faking a bunch of storytelling to eventually reveal a fact. But what's what's so bizarre about the, the procedure of that night is that this thing that blew up kept getting colder and colder and kept dropping in power. It was so counterintuitive, and that in and of itself is a kind of gift because it allows Legasov to tell a story knowing fully well that as he tells it, it shouldn't be making sense for the people listening to it, which is interesting, right? So now he has that going for him in a sense that he he has to start to explain to them, listen, what I'm about to say makes no sense, but trust me when I tell you this will make sense. So acknowledging those things as he went along, I think helped a lot. And also the fact that, and I completely agree with Jared, that I don't think when he showed up, he thought he was going to tell the truth. I think he was quite sure he wasn't. 
one of the reasons I'm so fixated on that scene is because it succeeds against you know all the traditional odds. You don't have that much exposition. You don't make the exposition technical. You don't make that the climax of you your story. You don't shoot and dogs. Yet, exactly. <laughs> you know, well, we know, yeah, those things. But that yeah. scene in particular. And uh, do you think, Jared, that in that moment after Sherbina stands up and says, let him finish, that when he chooses to finish the explanation, to talk about the, the graphite tips and the flaw in the reactor, the stuff he wasn't supposed to talk about, do you think that uh, Legato knew exactly what would happen to him, what then does happen to him in that conversation with the KGB guy. Yes. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of answers to that. I mean, I'm just winding back just slightly, one of the other things that was keeping me going was, the, was understanding his sense of culpability, mm. which I initially found quite confusing. But, uh, but as you play out those scenes prior to that, you started to understand where that feeling of culpability was coming from. So that was a big part of what was happening. I I think that he thought he was going to be shot. I mean, the image that I had in my mind was that I was going to be um, up against a wall at the back of the courthouse and shot within within 60 seconds of this happening. And yet he does it anyway. And that probably, uh, just trying to understand it, is what gives that supposedly dry technical scenes such extraordinary power there was well there was a paradox that i enjoyed that you and i discussed uh craig and that was that early scene in episode five where hom yuk is is trying to persuade him to do this that this is the right thing to do and on the one hand he's dying it's the same thing that gives him the power to uh to make the sacrifice that he makes at the end of his life for it to be an instigating event. But on the other hand, if you've three years you've got left, that's eternity for you and they're precious. So you still have a life left to live. Um, So in that moment, um, you're, you're, you're dealing with this idea of, well, I'm going to die anyway. But on the other hand, this is all the life I have left, and even if it's sixty seconds, it's the most. That becomes even more precious. Um, and I and it was sort of balancing those two feelings as you were approaching that that choke point, if you like, of right, am I going to do this or not? Yeah, I thought that that when you got to that moment, you. I think the best thing you could have imagined would happen is that you'd look in the eyes of those scientists and you would see their acknowledgement that yes, what you had said made an impact and they were going to carry this message forth and these reactors would be fixed. You would then get shot, <laughs> but but that something would be carried on. And yet all you see in their eyes is, yeah, no, 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 no. And I think there was also something, because this is why, this was something that, again, that Craig and I talked about, which was, it was the idea of the culpability. And the culpability also ties into the Dyatlov character. Right. And and Dyatlov was firmly in the crosshairs as being responsible for the whole event. But there was a there was a, a bit in the script, I don't think it, and it didn't make it in, which is where the, the, uh, the prosecutor starts to dig into him about his... Um, history behind uh, the motivations why he he did what he did and at that moment he he i felt some compassion for diatlov well diatlov when diatlov even in the version that we have in in the show which is it is a shorter version i think at least my what i get away from it and, and and what i what the intention was was that 
you're on the edge of what you should do or say. You're probably not going to do it. And then Dialov interrupts your moment of hesitation and essentially says, this is a bunch of crap and you, Legasov, know it and you're a liar. And, and that, it's a, it's a strange thing to have a villain be the person that inspires the hero to do the right thing. But that's kind of what happens there because the truth of the matter is Dyatlov had no concept that what he was doing could lead to an explosion. None. Zero. And to, to that extent, he is innocent. He, he's, he's guilty of a lot of things. But, but And calling out Legasov in that moment, I think, is what inspires Legasov to say, okay, you know what? Actually, that's, that's true. Because he knows it's, it's true about himself. Yeah. Uh, although as a as a so as an actor though I had confusion about it because then I would sit there and go well practically speaking what could he have done 10 years ago because 10 years ago when you were aware of this information right. you're still in the Soviet Union it's still top down control they're not, they're, they decide what the story that's going out there they decide the narrative that's put out there so how could he practically have done something about it at that time all the way back then and yet he still feels responsible because that's the story yeah I mean he couldn't have done anything I think basically he has arrived at a moment where he can this is it this is the one moment where theoretically he could do something and this man has cut to the heart of him and essentially said, you are a liar. That's why you're not doing anything right now when you could. And, and that's ultimately what I think changes Legasov's mind. Um, and the idea that, it, that, again, you're taking something out of that scene with Stalin, that it's got to all be worth. It's got to, right. it's got to mean something. It had to be about something. Yes, it exactly. has to be that, worth something. That scene also is a moment. I mean, you know, when I, so I have this, you know, we have our different theories about how this works. Jane Featherstone, one of our executive producers, her theory is that it's, it's in the moment following that discussion with Sherbina on the little park bench there that Legasov decides, I think I'm probably going to do the right thing here and tell the truth. So everybody has a different kind of interpretation of it. Yeah. Everyone. And we had even on the day or the leading up to the day, it was all swirling around and, and I'm sure there's versions of it where you could have, because it was, um, you know, it was a fluid thing, but there was no rehearsal. So you have to treat every single take as though you're in a rehearsal, you know, and you don't know what's going to work and allow the editors to finally put the performance together because you, you, it's not, you know, in a play you get together, you rip, you pull the scenes apart, you do them this way and you, you know, as many different ways as you can through the rehearsal and you finally, with the director, arrive upon a, a narrative structure and that's how you're going to do the play for the audience when they come in. Well, you don't can't do that in cinema. Uh, nobody, they, they don't pay for rehearsal any longer. Back in the old days, you used to have three weeks of rehearsal. That's gone. So you, I feel as though you have to treat the takes, uh, that's why you keep begging for takes, so that you can try and put the story together a different way each time and then let them decide when they rewrite the script for the last time in the editing room which way works best. That's something that I think most people don't know that 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 what we the audience see from an actor is is one of many things if if they're good and if the production allows it many different choices they tried in the day and and that and that what we are seeing is the one that was selected usually by the editor and director. 
as best representing what happens. That's a fascinating aspect of your craft that I don't think most people know. I, I wanted that. I said I had two questions. Uh, the first one took a long time. Here's the second one. And it, uh, and it reflects something that I talked about with Craig, which is that as a writer-producer, what had he learned, not so much about his craft, but about people and about the world having done this project? And I wanted to ask you the same thing. If you, after playing this character, and maybe even after watching the reaction to it, if you had learned anything about people or the world or how the world works. I mean, there's a there's a couple of things that spring to mind. One is that I encountered people who are nostalgic for that system. Really? They tend to be older, yeah. And they feel that life was simpler back then. And you, Do you see what they mean? Do you, do you, can you understand that perspective? Well, it was partly to do with... Uh, the thing that struck a chord was everyone had the same car. Everyone had the same clothes. Everyone had the same you know, phone. Whereas now you, you, now you have to worry whether your car is as good as your neighbor's car. And, um, and that was causes dissatisfaction, huh. and which they didn't have before. Um, and yes, there was, there was no choice, but then there was a, a feeling of that it, it caused, there was some harmony that came about from that. Um, I don't know whether I agree with them or not, because I didn't experience it. Um, what else? There was something else that sprung to mind that's just popped out of it. I can let you cogitate on that as I move over to Craig. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel I, I would be remiss if I did not ask both of you what you thought about how much this show has become an object of political argument. Do, mm-hmm. do you guys have any feelings about that conversation, whether you've enjoyed it, whether, you've, whether you think it's a worthwhile thing, whether it bothers you, anything at all? Uh, I... Um I think that a lot of people miss the point. Not all of them, but a bunch of them. Anybody who looks at this show and says, you know, this teaches us something about blank, generally they're correct. The show is about people. And and I wish I could explain that to, to those who think it's about politics. It's not. It's about people and it's about our, our weaknesses as humans and the way we think and process the world around us. And so, of course, it can be kind of kaleidoscopic in that regard you can look at any human failure and go this is quite reminiscent of the human failure at chernobyl jared do you have any thoughts about that have you been like amazed to see it as 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 it's unfolded well i i think that that question uh is in the dna of the show is in the dna of what craig was interested in i mean it's from the very opening line to the last line I think that uh, when when people sort of say, well, of course, our cultures or our system isn't like that system, the closest analogy to me to the way that the Soviet system was set up really is in corporate culture um, mm. and the way that corporations are structured. And, uh, and of course, what's happened in the West is so much of the way that our lives are run, our governments are run, are influenced and mandated by what is good for the corporations rather than what's good for the individual citizens. And then I remembered the second part of that question you asked me before, and it does relate to this, because the thing that I walked away with uh, as, as being sort of the biggest lesson about this was the biggest danger happens when you become cynical uh, towards your ability to have a dialogue or to affect your government. And in, in, that, in this story, nobody believes any longer that they are going to be able to impact what their government does. And it takes something this huge 
for for them to wake up and realize that um they aren't in control and that their narrative is being blown wide open and but no i mean that's the purpose of that joke isn't it about the uh, apple machine the soviet machine that cuts an apple into three pieces um they are all perfectly aware of the the system that they live under and they've become cynical as to as to their role in it and their ability in it and that's the biggest danger i think is if you no longer believe that you can do anything and then you just you give up the show, of course, came out to extraordinary acclaim that seemed to increase as more and more people found out about it. Uh, both of you have been nominated for significant awards or won some, I think, so already. Uh, I'm assuming, I'm not in the industry, but I assume this means that more opportunities will open to both of you uh, in your field. So I'll ask both of you, uh, do you know what's next? I do. I do, do have things that are coming next and they, uh, I can't talk about them per se. I will say that at the very least, the first one is also about our world and things that happened, but they they happened much more recently and they happened much more close to home. I was going to ask you, Craig, I was going to wonder whether or not people are basically throwing comedies your way or are they now that that's completely off the table and now they're throwing sort of dramas and historical dramas because it seems like people sort of tend to follow the pattern of the last thing they saw. Uh, they sure do. <laughs> so, yes. so a, a a remarkable stream of, oh God, look at this depressing chapter in history has made its way to my inbox. And, <laughs> and 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 listen, yeah. I I entertain them all. I mean, I I look through all of it. I consider all of it um, because what you are looking for from, and I'm fascinated by history. Obviously, what you're looking for are chapters in history where there are people and relationships embedded into it that you think are going to translate to now and offer some kind of universal perspective and enlightenment to an audience. Um, and, you know, a lot of these events are just, they're events. And so they're, they don't have quite that. You know, I think about, like, for instance, Gallipoli, which is one of my favorite movies, and how you can take something like that and really make it about human beings. That's, that's what you're hoping for when you're thinking about these moments in in history, but yeah, no, they—they've definitely. I—I stopped getting the the silly comedy offers or yeah. you know the raunchy comedy offers, and now it's, it's a lot of that stuff, which is gratifying. Um, Do you regret they're not giving me more jokes, then, Craig? I don't regret anything, Jared. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I regret nothing because I think that was our first our first <laughs> meeting. We went and had drinks at the Chateau Marmont, yeah. and I said, you know, can I have? I mean, a few jokes, a few, a little bit of a sense of humor. No, <laughs> but, but the Soviets do have a. They have a really yes. good, like, dark sense of no, no, no oh, well, jokes for you. Other characters did other have characters, yes. but no jokes for you. Well, Legasov just wasn't funny. He's just not, not a funny guy. But he did. But see, you're a funny person, so there were moments where you created laughs out of your awkwardness. I mean, I remember the first time. So I think it was week two, it was the first day of, of the second week, and I'm sitting with uh, Johan in an open field watching the scene where Jared and Stellan have arrived and are meeting um, Brukhanov and Famine to discuss, you know, why did I see graphite on the roof and all that. And and initially, Jared's character, Legasov, has to hang back by the, the helicopter because he's he's been he's been naughty, you know. <laughs> he got into an argument with Sherbina in the helicopter. And then Sherbina wait, like, all right, come on over. And... Jared just has this thing where he's walking and then he gets close and then the guards that are walking with him stop. He like moves a half a step in front of them and then just awkwardly steps backward. 
And the two of us were just, we honestly thought that was the funniest thing we'd ever seen because it encapsulated a certain kind of Legosovian nature to us. This awkward scientist who never really had to deal with these things before, didn't want to get something wrong like how you walk and stop, (laughs) but had no problem yelling at people and telling them that they weren't doing their jobs right because he just didn't have much of a filter in that regard. So um, you, I mean, you, you made us laugh anyway. So that's hats off to you. And, and yes, once I, well, I'm going to go back to comedy and it'll, you'll be um, justly rewarded. (laughs) Yeah, and you'll bring me in and you're like, yeah, but you still don't have any jokes. Yeah, yeah, no, you don't have any jokes, but but you're going to stand here while they have jokes and you need to. Yeah, yeah. So anybody listening out there, Jared Harris wants to do a comedy. Send him like, I don't know, Hangover 4? What are we up to, Comedy's hard. (laughs) Tell me about it. Comedy's really hard. Tell me about it. I mean, you know, that is not something that you should say, you know, you take on. I mean, there was that sort of famous, uh, I don't even know if it's true, about Edmund Keane as he's dying on his deathbed. You heard that thing? I have, but I want to hear you tell it. Well, uh, so he's dying on his deathbed and then someone asks him if he's, is he all right? And he looks up at the person and he says, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. And I always wondered whether or not he probably had thought those were going to be his last words. And then he survived for three more days and he couldn't say anything. (laughs) He's like, fuck it. God damn it. Perfect. He knows a button. He's an actor. (laughs) I'm still alive three days later, but I can't say anything because those have to be my last words. (laughs) Speaking of last words, I think we have arrived there at the end of this. Probably, I think we can say final episode yeah. uh, bonus uh, yes craig's like yes absolutely yes. Of the we'll never Chernobyl do this again never. podcast <laughs> i am peter sagel i've been here with craig mazin and of course jared harris this podcast was made possible by hbo sky and pineapple street media it was co-hosted by myself peter sagel with craig mazin our team at pineapple street media includes executive producers max linsky jenna weiss berman and barry finkel This episode was produced by Christine Driscoll and Barry Finkel. Our associate producer is Melissa Slaughter. From Craig Mazin's team, we have producer Jack Lesko and music by Con Urbe. Craig, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you again and a genuine pleasure to see you acclaim for this great work. And Jared Harris, absolutely a joy to talk to you. And uh, just speaking on behalf of, shall we say, a few million viewers, thank you for your extraordinary work in this series as well. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you for having me.